Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Thank you for setting your podcast out at 14th and G. I am your host, Dean Hinkson. You heard it coming to you from the intersection of business and politics. We've all heard the tech term, and maybe we even think we understand it. But what is the cloud? Chances are it knows more about you than you know about it. Much of your data from social media, work documents, credit card, tax information, it's not only stored on the cloud, but it operates on it. But beyond that, industries of every kind have been transformed by the technology of the cloud and what it makes possible. And if we want to understand more, and I do, I've got the perfect guest today. Kit Colbert is the chief technology officer for one of the leading tech firms providing cloud services, among other things, VMware. Kit focuses on shaping VMware's technical vision, research and development, and the continued transformation of cloud technology. Kit Colbert, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. It's great to be have you here in the studio. Glad you're in town from mm-hmm. the West Coast. Kit, I like to start uh, at the beginning. Uh, you're the chief technology officer for one of the world's uh, largest tech companies. What does VMware do for its customers, and what's your role in that? Yeah. Well, it's funny, because uh, we are a very large software company, but many folks have never heard of us. Uh, we've been really focused on helping both private sector companies as well as public sector agencies and departments for the past 20-odd years. First, starting in the data center, really modernizing and optimizing how people can leverage computing resources. And now we've transitioned into the cloud to support customers' migrations there, as well as uh, how they're modernizing applications, going through that much larger digital transformation, right? As you talked about, all the data, the apps are going to the cloud. What does that mean? And how can these organizations navigate that change? Well, what does that mean? Because we hear, you, you hear about the cloud, cloud storage, cloud applications, cloud migration, cloud mm-hmm. computing. What's a layperson definition of the cloud? How should, how should regular consumers think of it? Yeah, so the way I like to think of it is to compare it to sort of how things used to be. So in the traditional IT world, in order to get access to a resource, you typically had to file a ticket Right, you're saying, hey, I, I want a new server. And they, they would then validate that. Does Kit really need a new server? <laughs> Maybe you go talk to my boss and then you go order the server. It would take you know, six to nine months for that hardware to get there and then they deploy it. And you know, 10 months later, you'd have your server. <clears throat> now, we were able to optimize some of that with our original software from VMware, but a lot of that ticketing process was still in place. And what the cloud has really done is allowed users to be able to get direct access and immediate access to resources without the need to talk to anyone. They can just go solely through software to to do it. And that's a really, really profound and powerful concept. And what you see is folks going out and taking advantage of these technologies, oftentimes without the company or the organization even knowing about it. Right, because it's expensive uh, to order that server for Kit, right? It is, it is. But, I mean, it may be worthwhile over time. The the main issue is really time to value. If I want to go do something, and like, let's say I've got a, you know, as a business, I've got a big event coming up and I need to prepare for that. I don't want to wait six or nine months to get 
the resources. I want to get them now. And that's really what cloud enables. It allows you to get access to resources on the fly, for pay, to pay for them as you need them. And given the size of the cloud, it can dynamically expand to take on whatever sort of resources that, that you want to use. Because in any modern office, uh, we, we all know the server closet, right? And I guess, you know, the larger the organization, the larger that server closet you, is a data center, mm -hmm. right? And, mm -hmm. and the cloud takes those data centers off-premises and, yeah. and you don't have to scramble by for extra bandwidth. Yeah, you don't have to manage it. It takes takes a care of a lot of those things for you. Now, I will say a couple of things. <clears throat> While the cloud's amazing, you know, some customers that still want to leverage their on-premises data centers. So we see a bit of both. People in the data center, but people also aggressively moving out to cloud because it is so powerful. So in any case, you know, as you go down that, and as we've seen that the people go down this path over the past few years, what you find is that there's not just one cloud. There's actually many different clouds. You've got clouds from Amazon, Amazon Web Services, AWS, Microsoft Azure, Google, Google Cloud. So what you start finding is that because it is so easy to get started using a cloud, and because these clouds differ in terms of their capabilities and best-of-breed services and so forth, you find that organizations are using multiple clouds that sort of organically this has kind of happened. And now they found themselves in this cir circumstance where it's like, well, how do I manage across all that? Right. How do I secure things across all that? Uh, how do I manage costs, for instance, across all that? That starts to get a little tricky and a little challenging for folks. So this is, this is multi-cloud, and this is really where VMware is focused now mm -hmm. because, you, like you said, it's, it's Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure. You guys aim to be, VMware aims to be cloud agnostic. So that's, I've heard that term before, yes. so you can operate yes. across all these different, help your customers operate across all these different environments. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what we find is, what we see customers typically doing is they'll say, hey, I'm going to standardize on one of the clouds, like let's say AWS. And that's their plan, and they're going to do that, and it's a great plan. But then something changes, right? For private sector, they might do an acquisition. And this, this new company they acquire might use Azure. So now they got two different clouds. Or they might have one of their teams decide, you know what, I don't really like AWS. I want to go to Google Cloud. And so they're going to start using Google Cloud. Because again, all it takes is a swipe of a credit card, right. and they're using it. So what we find is that while people may have intentions of using only a single cloud, the reality of essentially every organization that I talk to today, both within the government and in the private sector, is that they're using multiple clouds. And so then the challenge becomes, <clears throat> as I talked about, how do you actually manage across that complexity? Probably the biggest issue that I hear from customers is around security, right? Security is absolutely top of mind. And when you put an application out there, and if you have apps on multiple clouds, how do you ensure that those apps are secure? How do you ensure that the supply chain to build those apps and deliver those apps is secure? So apply, by the way, <laughs> software supply chain, same idea as a physical supply chain in that you know, you take think about your phone, like where do all the little parts in your phone come from? They come from all over the world, right. right? And there's things like, I was just listening to a podcast this morning on like cobalt mining and some of the issues there, <laughs> right? Coming from somewhere, you know, at far away. You know, just like with the phone, like how do you know where these parts come from? How do you know that the labor that was used, let's say, to mine the cobalt was actually humane and, you know, wasn't like, you know, wh whatever it is, right? There are those sorts of issues. There are similar types of issues from a security standpoint with software. How do you know where all these different bits come from? A lot of the software we use today is open source, and which means that it's uh, freely available on the internet and many people from around the world contribute back to it. 
And so how do you know that those contributions are you know, trustworthy? And how do you validate that? So I think this is like one of the really big questions. And when you think about that, and then try to think about how do I manage that across all these really diverse and heterogeneous environments, that's where the problems start to come in. And that's where people really start to get worried. Uh, you were at you're, you're you're here in D.C. Uh, doing a number of meetings. You're gonna you're gonna participate in a in a White House roundtable later today, I believe. Mm -hmm. You were here earlier for a White House roundtable yeah. uh, on some of these security issues. I mean, security is obviously w when it comes to tech is probably top of mind for policymakers. Uh, you've got massive amounts of data out there. Mm -hmm. uh, what what are you hoping to hear from policymakers? What are you telling policymakers yeah. on the security front? Yeah. So the good news is that this is a top of mind issue for policymakers, uh, the White House in particular. I think, again, the reality is they understand the importance of software to our overall infrastructure and to government infrastructure in particular, to the livelihood of so many Americans and the fundamental risks that are there. Uh, from open source. Open source, by the way, is a very good thing <laughs> on the whole. It's used in pretty much anything that you use, your, you know, your car, your phone, your laptop, it's all got open source in it, right? So the, the question is not whether to do open source or not. The question is, how do we do it right? And how do we reduce those systemic risks? So when we talk to policymakers, there's a number of different things that, that we're really looking at from a security perspective. Number one, how do we ensure that the open source repositories are trustworthy, as I said. How do we know the code in there is good, behaves like it should? Because in open source, it just means that the code is publicly available. Yep. Yeah. And anyone can check in, right? I mean, there, there's various controls and gates about who and when and how, but it's not just in the, the code itself. Because in order, like the way a computer works is that you take the, the source code and you can what's called compiling it down to a binary that the computer itself can read and execute. And this is how you know apps work on your phone and so forth. They're binaries. And so a lot of people download these binaries, the open source binaries that they use in their applications. And that's where another thing can creep in because maybe the source code's okay, but the process of turning it into a binary, you might be able to, as an attacker, insert some other malicious code. So you gotta look at that sort of conversion. And then you gotta look at where has that binary been? Like where was it uploaded on the internet? And who controlled that? And could they have somehow done something to it? So there's the whole provenance and, and chain of custody there. So you know you look across all these different areas. And then the, the, the third one would really be around education. So a big focus here is how do we ensure that folks in the open source community are really educated on these issues? And we're talking about some form of certification there. Possibly, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> we could go that far, but most ba more basic is just awareness around these issues. I think most developers, most programmers, they're thinking about, hey, I want to do something cool. I want to add some cool functionality. They're not thinking about, hey, how might I be hacked? And how should I be defending against that? And what are sort of the best practices around that, right? Kit, you wrote in a blog post earlier this year, and speaking of security, we're going we're gonna to start to see a real move away from passwords and logins yeah. uh, towards biometrics. Yep. This is, you know, we've already got facial recognition on our iPhones. We're seeing it at airports. <laughs> when am I going to be able to get rid of that <laughs> awful list of ridiculous passwords? Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Passwords are, I mean, not the worst, but one of the worst type forms of authentication in the sense of it's very easy to trick users into giving out their passwords into like a fake website. People forget their passwords, to your point. There's all sorts of these different things. So one of the things that we're working on is that in this whole space we call zero trust. And uh, zero trust, is, it's a very broad term, kind of an umbrella term that encompasses many different aspects of security. 
But one aspect of it is the, the user aspect and the user access. Some of the stuff that we're working on effectively looks at, instead of using passwords, can we use things like certificates on your, on your device, your laptop or your phone that can authenticate you with a cloud service or with a data center, you know, wherever you want to go, automatically so that you don't have to. And then you just need to authenticate with that device. And so you can do that you know, with your iPhone, you can have Face ID or, or Touch ID, these sorts of things. So we're definitely working toward that. Now, the more general question is when you want to go to some random website that may not be connected with your organization. This all works well when everything is connected to your place of business, let's say. Like okay. here at, at VMware, we use our own software. And so we use many different SaaS services, right? We've got Workday, and we've got ADP, and we've got Office 365, and you know, we've got 50 or 100 of these things. And there's no way I'm gonna remember a password for every one of those, right? right? In fact, we don't allow you to use a password. So what I do is, I've enrolled my laptop with VMware, it's authenticated, it's got a certificate. I log in, I go to login.vmware.com, and that automatically authenticates me, and then I just get a list of all my websites that, that are VMware related. I can just click on them and it automatically logs me in. There's no password, nothing. It does it because there's kind of, again, a chain of custody, a chain of identity there from the laptop, which has authenticated me all the way up to the website. So this works well in these kind of connected environments. The, the question is for your personal environment, you know, you're going out, let's say, to your bank or whatever it is, and you right. still need a password there. So we are working on that, and how do we sort of expand that identity? And there's other players, vendors in the market, they're working on the consumer side of that. But that's where it's going, right? And that's absolutely the future. Like, the longer that we hold on to passwords, the we, you know, the longer we'll continue to be insecure. <laughs> From your lips to God's ear, I can't, uh, <laughs> it's, I've got so many passwords at this yep. point. One of the other areas where where cloud technology has really had an impact is is, is in networking. Mm -hmm. And what we've experienced over the last two years in work from home, remote work from anywhere, and emerging from the pandemic, uh, a much greater level of remote work is obviously here to stay. Uh, what do you see the trends? How does how does cloud impact our yep. ability to sort of work from anywhere? Yeah, <clears throat> so it fundamentally enables it. But as we talked about, you have to have security while doing it, right? right? And so this is the other aspect of zero trust. The, the way to think about zero trust is that historically, think back 20 years or so, the companies had data centers. There, there was no cloud at the time. And so all the apps, all the software, all the data lived within that data center. And in fact, you couldn't even access it remotely. You had to come into the office and you're physically plugged into it, right? You know, you old you know, desktop computers and things like that, right? And so the idea there was that you kind of think about that as a castle and that everything inside the castle is trusted. It's all good. You can easily interconnect between things there. Everything outside that castle is untrusted. So you build big castle walls, you build your moat, and that's how security was done. Everything inside is trusted, everything outside untrusted. The problem is that whole sort of castle analogy is completely broken by the modern way that we work. I mean, think about a modern organization today, right? You've got maybe a data center with some data, but you also have cloud and a bunch right. of your data and apps are out there. You've got Office 365 and a bunch of your sensitive confidential documents are out there in that cloud. And you've got your laptop and you've got your mobile device and you're working from home and maybe you've got you know something somewhere else. You know, you got a lot of our customers have 
you know, oil companies. They got oil rigs out in the middle of the Pacific or something, right? And they got we're all going sand. from castle to castle. <laughs> exactly. In the well, yeah. And so instead of having one giant one that you protect, the way you got to think about it is really shrinking that down and thinking about tiny little castles around each of these devices, each of these areas. And that's the whole notion of zero trust: is that you shrink that down, and then you authenticate locally. But then, then you have connectivity in between them. So it's not like some giant thing where you trust everything. In fact, you kind of distrust almost everything by default. And that's that note that zero trust, as the name suggests, right? But what you can do is you can extend that out, not just for you know uh, servers and, and other sorts of you know IoT devices, and, you know cameras, but also you know your laptop, your phone, and bring those into the circle of trust. Just like I talked about in that previous example, my laptop is a trusted device within VMware's environment. And by the way, you can do a lot of really cool kind of posture type stuff. So for instance, if it knows my cell phone is out of the country like maybe in China, it's like, well, okay, hold on a sec. You know, let's put some extra security there just right. to make sure you're not getting hacked or whatever, right? So you can do that sort of stuff. Or maybe my phone has not been updated to the latest version of iOS, in which case you might say, well, hold on a sec. You're using an old version. I know there's like a hack in there, so I'm not going to let you in. So you can do a whole bunch of that sort of posture bit based on the characteristics or the specifics of that device. That's uh, that's fascinating, Kit. I want to get your take on uh, on another issue. You're you're obviously a tech expert, and you've written a bit uh, on how blockchain technology is here to stay. Uh, my decision to dump my four hundred one k into a Bitcoin <laughs> ETF is looking very poor. Yeah, yeah, everyone's but, hurting right now. <laughs> the coin values, the and the price fluctuations, they get all the headlines. But the underlying technology of blockchain. Uh, what's it doing right now, and, and yeah, it's got a future. Yeah, <clears throat> so I think it's really important to separate. And this, by the way, <laughs> before I got into it, I sort of conflated blockchain and Bitcoin as well, right? Or bl uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies, right? Um, but they're fundamentally <clears throat> different things in the sense that blockchain is an underlying technology. It's basically called a distributed ledger, uh, where you share essentially share a database or share a set of data amongst many different parties, all of which are able to write into that database. They're all, they're all able to modify it. As you can imagine, normally in that situation, you need 100% trust right. across all of them. Because someone could write it like, you know, if it's a cryptocurrency, well, I'm just going to write in that I've got a million dollars, right? <laughs> and it's all good. <clears throat> but no, blockchain was designed to deal with that problem. It can actually deal with malicious actors who are writing, you know, fake or bad stuff. And, and the rest of the participants can identify that and say, nope, actually, you're not valid. We're pushing you out, right? So that's the beauty of blockchain. Of course, it works very well for cryptocurrencies where you need this sort of thing. You can't have malicious actors doing that sort of stuff. But it turns out that the blockchain algorithms and technology actually work very well for other use cases besides cryptocurrency. So for instance, you look at capital markets, a big focus area for us right now. And within capital markets, you know, it's how is it that today it still takes like three days to settle a trade, right? Right. You know, it's wild because a lot of the processes, even though so much is digitized, a lot of the processes still are manual and people are checking things and, and blah, 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 right? It takes a while. But we are working with a number of financial services customers who are now re-architecting their entire systems to be on top of blockchain. Because within a blockchain, you can have what's called a smart contract, basically a contract that executes between um, based on a transaction or between two parties and that can happen automatically and that can happen within seconds so no longer in the in the glorious future will it take three days or five days or whatever it is to settle the transaction you can do it within seconds cut out you know so much of the manual overheads that are there today but capital markets is just the start there's a ton of other financial services uh, healthcare manufacturing supply chain these are all use cases where you have multiple parties 
who are, need to be interacting together on a shared set of data and who all need to be modifying it in different ways. It's that idea of an incorruptible ledger. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So that's, that's where the blockchain technology is really exciting for us because we see so many opportunities to fundamentally rethink the underlying and really optimize the underlying business process there, right? And to enable technology to really help facilitate that. Kit, you are here in town. Uh, you've been up and around the hill been over to Commerce, mm -hmm. National Institutes of Standards and Technology, uh, mm -hmm. the, the good folks at NIST. I'm, I'm wondering what this all means for the for the policymaker and the, the typical member of Congress, maybe even the typical administration official, is never yep. uh, going to approach your level, uh, depth of knowledge and understanding of these issues. What are three things you would want policymakers to know about what you and VMware do? Yeah, so a couple of things, right? So number one is really around multi-cloud and the focus on having an open and interoperable multi-cloud architecture. And what I mean by that is essentially we don't want customers to um, have to choose, like I need to be in AWS or Azure or Google Cloud. We want to enable customers to have choice. They should be able to use all three. In fact, they are using <laughs> today all three. And they should be able to, to drive certain sets of industry standards uh, sets of capabilities across those three. You know, we talked about security, right? Having a right. common security approach across them. So I think, you know, we're, we are uh, talking with policymakers absolutely about that because multi-cloud's an evolving area and we're still fairly early in on it. And so I think we as an industry are coalescing around it and we want to make sure that the policy follows that sort of open, interoperable architecture, which exactly, by the way, is what made the internet so spectacularly successful because it's open and interoperable by default. So that's the first one, right. really that multi-cloud architecture. The second one really dives in on security. And this one, you know, we talked about with the, the White House Summit on software security. There's a bunch of other things, <clears throat> a number of executive orders on this, such as the software bill of materials requirements. So I think we really want to be thoughtful in how we go forward there to make sure we have the right sets of uh, security requirements in place. Uh, so, such that we can have trust in the software that we're running, right? Both open source as well as proprietary software from vendors. And then the third one we're working on, which we haven't actually touched on yet, but it's really around the telco and 5G space. Now this space is super hot. There's a ton of activity, ton of innovation happening there. And there's one particular area within there, it's a little geeky technical, but it's called uh, Open RAN. So essentially, <clears throat> this is a core part of the 5G architecture. It's part of what enables 5G to be 5G. And Open radio access ooh, network. You're one step ahead, I love it. <laughs> uh, can't stump you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and so what we see here is another opportunity to really dramatically open up the opportunities. Traditionally, when you look at uh, telcos like AT&T and Verizon and these folks, they would right. buy this sort of technology from vendors, but they'd be, you know, completely proprietary, completely within a single, really single physical server they're usually buying. And that was fine in the past, but it really didn't allow for the sort of open and interoperable innovations that we've seen in the more general internet, as well as what we're talking about for multi-cloud. And so I think, you know, what we have is a situation where we've seen actually Huawei and China kind of race ahead on that front. And we're a little bit behind right now in terms of Western companies and technologies. So it's all about us really accelerating through that open architecture. And again, that's what Open RAN is. It's, a, as the name suggests, an open architecture. Yeah, and, and Open RAN, the, the Open RAN standard can help alleviate some of the security concerns around 
hardware from from outfits like Huawei. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, it's just as secure. Um, in fact, more secure than, than many of these previous offerings. But it also enables a bunch of innovative players to come in. Like, for instance, there's someone that we partner with, a, a small vendor. They're looking at what's called spectral efficiency. There's all sorts of real detailed things about how cell phones work and this stuff. But the, the point of it is that these guys are able to get an amazing performance advantage in a way that no one else would ever do. They are solely focused on that. And that's the type of innovation that we really need to be enabling here, clearing a space, creating a platform for these innovators to be able to come in and really uh, bring best-of-breed capabilities out into the market. Kit Colbert, Chief Technology Officer for VMware, probably the largest tech company you've never heard of, but you guys are doing amazing and really cool stuff. I really appreciate you coming up here uh, into the studio and joining me on 14th and G. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iHeart, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So long from the intersection of business and politics. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.